0: Fellow BSers, welcome to A Load of BS, the behavioural science podcast with me, Daniel Ross. If you liked House of Cards, UK version wins every time, or The West Wing, you're in for a treat. This week, I welcome political strategist, namesake and keeper of our eponymous tartan and ice shelf, Mark A. Ross, to a load of BS. Mark's storytelling, his exuberance and his experience at the forefront of global politics glitter through both part one and part two of our conversation. Mark is a political nut. He fell in love with Reagan's campaign in 1984 as a young teenager and has been immersed ever since. You'll hear in the pod that Mark's knowledge and interests fly way beyond home affairs. He's no partisan. His outlook is utterly global, and he's a keen student of our British system, amongst other, believing firmly that a broad lens gives perspective. He is the founder of Caracal, a communications and political intelligence firm specialising in international trade, commercial relations, economic diplomacy, and global business. He's also the founder of The Brigadoon, a global membership network helping leaders make better connections and helping them better understand the emerging issues shaping commerce and culture. This only scratches the surface of Mark's affiliations. Best is to go to caracal.global, C-A-R-A-C-A-L, and thebrigadoon.com to find out more. If that quality of build-up hasn't attracted you to subscribe to and follow a load of BS, if indeed you aren't already, then here is your moment. Hit the button, pull the bell, whatever you need to do. I won't reveal names just now, but trust me, we have some quite phenomenal individuals joining me over the coming weeks. Today, we're talking about power and influence versus control, Clinton's candy shop and reciprocity, political attractiveness and M&M's ad strategy, delusions of grandeur, what it takes to be a successful politician, confirmation bias and the West Wing, and how politics really works beyond the sport of media reporting. If you like my shows and weekly writings, do share on Twitter and with friends. There's no giveaway apart from my eternal appreciation and love and the enormous dopamine hit you'll get by doing it. Trust me it works. You can also find all my podcasts on all the favourite platforms. Do subscribe on Apple, Spotify and others and give me a five star review. And let me know what you think of it all here or on Twitter at DanielSJRoss. Now enjoy the show. Mark, welcome to A Load of BS. It's great to have you along today.
1: Tremendous to be here. Thanks for the invitation. I always love talking to somebody in the UK. So This is
0: great. Great stuff. Now, Mark, I'm in the UK, as you say. You live in Washington, DC. And according to your website, you are a communications strategist working at the intersection of politics, globalization and disruption. What does that mean?
1: That means, well, three things. So I think it's important to know, I grew up in the industrial Midwest. I grew up around Detroit, the heartland of America, living in Michigan and Ohio. I grew up along a lot of smokestacks. I came of age in the 80s. So I am vehemently aware of how Americans do not like automotive imports. So that was like my first real lesson, like from a visceral level of trading globalization right? I grew up in a very heavy American automotive family and a lot of Christmas dinners. There was a lot of talk about how Japanese imports are destroying America and how Japan is going to take over America, et cetera, et cetera. And I just was fascinated by trade and globalization at a very early age and commerce. And I also had a huge passion for politics. Ronald Reagan and his re-election tour in 84 I came to my little hometown in Perrysburg, Ohio, which is in a key constituency, Wood County, Ohio, in Northwest Ohio. And I was 13 years old and was just a national by the circus of politics and you know, seeing the president come to my little hometown. And those two influences, like commerce, business, trade, came together at a very early age. And I've always kind of studied and been in that kind of space. Disruption comes in, in the early aughts, I worked for Microsoft on their antitrust case. And that was also a huge lesson. Like, you know, how does the government decide to pick winners and losers on the economy? What is a monopoly? How do you protect innovation? So all these three big elements. And that's kind of really capped a 20-year career of working on these kind of big forces that are really shaping society for good and bad around the world. And I help people talk about it, you know, because I think it's important. Like globalization is here, right? The question is: is it gonna be good or bad? And what does that mean for people? How do you manage special interests? How do you grow an economy? How do you protect an economy? You know, these are big issues. And a lot of them are being fought at the highest levels of government, not only in DC, but in London, Brussels, Beijing, Tokyo. So that's that's the long answer. I should find a quicker answer. I need a communication expert to sort that
0: out. Touche, exactly. But talking of big forces and presidents that you mentioned, now that Biden's in power and Hocus Pocus 45 is in Snorri Lago, is life on the hill all a bit of an anti-climax? What are you talking about now?
1: DC has gotten much more sleepy, much more normal. I mean, frankly, this is uh, a joke. It's barely a real town. You know, every high school class president has descended on DC. There's tons of lawyers. There isn't really a good rock and roll scene. The art scene is kind of boring. So it's a very serious town. And it's gotten, you know, serious again. But Trump is lurking around. He's certainly the most popular Republican. All indications, conventional wisdom in DC is that Joe Biden's a one-termer. So you're looking at 60 candidates, you know, both sides of the aisle running for office. And, that campaign would launch in early, you know, January twenty twenty three. and so we're not that far away. But government should be boring. You know, I mean, we shouldn't be talking about government and politics every day. There's so much news coverage around the world on politics. In some ways, you know, it's good to not know what the president is doing. I mean, I think that's the way to run a democracy.
0: I agree. I think that's a that's a decent barometer of success, having some level of tranquility. So taking a step back. So today, Mark, we're gonna dive into politics and try to understand what kinds of BS are going down. And I'm <laughs> I'm <laughs> sure our listeners, uh, exactly, you you can f- f- fill in the punchline as appropriate. I'm sure our listeners will be excited to hear your first hand stories, your observations, comparisons of leadership styles, uses of power and influence, modes of communication, decision-making, diplomacy to get things done. But I want to start by talking about power and influence. You live closer to it more than most people. And when you reflect on your time in Washington, who has used power for the good of the people? Who's abused its privilege? And maybe You could reference maybe how, for example, Biden and Trump use power very differently.
1: Yeah, so I live, yeah, I'm five miles from the White House. I'm like get a bike ride. I'm also 10 miles from Mount Vernon, George Washington's original home. And I'm less than a mile, half a mile from Robert e. Lee's home, right? So I'm surrounded by tons of history, which is pretty amazing for a political junkie to live in this part of the world. Any given day, there's something crazy going on in DC. You know, we got hundred plus 80 embassies, hearings on the Hill. So like I said, if you're into politics, this is an amazing place to live. That being said, so power and influence. So I think, you know, I'm probably not going to give you a very satisfactory answer, Power and influence is really how you see power and influence, right? And for good or evil, there's always good and evil in every decision. Like Thomas Sowell said, there's really no decision when it comes to policy, right? It's all about choices. And I think that's the way people should look at politics, especially as I've gotten older. You know, I do a lot more bipartisan stuff just because of the nature of my corporate work. You realize there's two sides to every issue. In fact, there could be four or five sides to every issue. And, you know, this winner take all mentality is good for TV and making good commentary and selling newspapers. But in reality, when you have to get a deal done, you got to compromise. And I think that's the nature of it. I think what's interesting about DC, you know, Downing Street, Paris, you know, you think about these like great hubs of global influence. Power is one thing. Like all these people have power right? But they have very little control, frankly. Like any given day, something could change to push somebody off course. So the power is critical because you want to force people to do something and you want to influence their decision. So that's the key. But what's lacking really is control and I think that keeps up a lot of politicians late at night and I'll give you a story like the Clinton administration Bill Clinton fantastic like easily one of the best politicians we've ever seen anywhere on the planet even with all the shenanigans amazing politician and the team around him got politics at a very visceral level I think because he was in the governor's mansion in Arkansas he had that training they used to run this thing called the candy shop and it was like anything that a member of Congress wanted a photo of Bo a tour of the White House you know tickets to the Kennedy Center that is like power and influence right just how do you make people like you? And when Obama famously came in, very professorial, very serious, they didn't have the candy shop. And it created it created problems because in some ways, politics at the most basic level is just making people feel special. Letting them get a photo in the Oval Office. Letting them, you know, whatever whatever it is. And um, I think a lot like the Communist Party in China, I think about this a lot. Just there's very ceremonial, the big chairs, all the imagery. That's all part of it, right? And that's where when you have power and you can use your influence to kind of shape decisions. I think that's what's kind important.
0: I love that story. I've never I've never heard about the the Clinton candy store. Yeah, the candy store was
1: great. It could be like the most random like a member of Congress wanting a photo with Bo the dog on the South Lawn. All right, let's get that done. And you keep a checklist of this stuff. You know, I worked for Tom the delay hammer. He was the majority whip from Texas. This is like my first job in DC. I'm like twenty five years old. Amazing introduction to politics. His job was the whip to get two hundred eighteen votes in the House floor to pass legislation and also to keep the majority. Those were his two main jobs. And we kept whatever little thing we could do to keep somebody happy. They had a new book. We bought a thousand copies. Oh, your dad runs a vineyard? We're going to serve that wine at this dinner. That was all kind of like the candy shop mentality
0: yeah the, these little things create you know really powerful reciprocity for the serious stuff
1: exactly when the push comes to shove and then just getting to know them that's always a key thing too especially as you see like these really close votes sometimes you got to take one for the team sometimes you can get a pass because like the local politics don't know that but getting the reciprocity is really key and it, it may seem seemly but that's how you got to grease the wheels of democracy
0: i want to build on that and i'm going to draw an analogy between actually advertising and politics and the ad people talk quite a lot about three factors which give a brand longevity they talk about fame in other words does my name come easily to mind they talk about feeling do people feel good about me and they talk about fluency. Am I recognizable? So an example, which is close to where you are, which comes to my mind is, for example, you question why candy brands would advertise, for example, in crazily expensive Times Square and even operate bricks and mortar shops there when their products are sold in every supermarket. They do that because you can't miss them because visiting that store makes a kid feel happy and the logo becomes really unforgettable. So you might've actually part answered this, but I nevertheless wanted to try and build on what you said to understand what are the critical factors which make politicians attractive? Is it just a question of, following Eminem's strategy? Or is there is there more to it than that?
1: No, 100%. I would say, yeah, building off that kind of message of three, like I've actually been thinking about this, like title is super important right? I've had certain jobs, and this happens to my friends too. My title is X. Like I worked for the Department of Energy or I work at the Department of State, whatever. I get invited to certain things. I'm saying like the Royal U, right? When I was a communication director at the U.S. China Business Council, I got invited to stuff. When I'm Mark Ross, solo entrepreneur, communication expert, <laughs> nobody cares because I, I don't have the title. So when you're a senator, congressman, ambassador, cabinet member, you have that title which gives you tons of power and influence and gets you invited to stuff. But once you're out of that office, nobody cares. You're only relevant because you have this title. Same kind of thing, like, with the candy. And then from there, maybe you do some thought leadership. Your ideas are interesting. People start following you politically. And then reputation, right? So whenever, for example, Henry Kissinger walks in a room, he's carrying 40 years of all kinds of good or bad foreign diplomacy, but his reputation precedes him, right? So it's the same politics in a lot of ways is, like, personal branding at scale. And it's becoming more so now that, in fact, you can communicate directly with constituents, not only in your own territory, but around the world with the internet. So, no, those same principles apply at a heavy level. There's a great book, 1968 election, selling the president. And it's about the Nixon campaign and how they brought in Roger Ailes and used a lot of, um, you know, Madison Avenue techniques to sell the president. In fact, the cover, I wish I don't know where the book is, but the cover is Nixon on a cigarette pack to being like, we're going to sell him like cigarettes. So it is the same kind of stuff. Having the title gives you a lot of power, but then it's like, how do you keep that going? And I think that's what's interesting.
0: Yeah. And I think we'll, we'll come back to that thought because one of the consequences of too much power is overconfidence. Now, if I think of Trump, to say Trump is a good example of that is perhaps platitudinous, although actually at the same time, of course, he has an extremely thin skin and constant suspicion of his enemies, whether they're fake or real. But do you see what we might call an optimism bias in the elevated circles you move in, where political players have a tendency to overestimate their abilities? They become more susceptible to believing their own sycophants and so believe more in the quality of their plans and ideas and then the likelihood of the future success of those.
1: 100%. I think, you know, winning an election automatically, most politicians think, oh, I'm right. People love me. (laughs) I won the election. But in reality, it's probably you were less worse than the other guy. That's why you won. So the hubris just about winning an election is super important. This is like for like kind of junior politicians when they first come in. Even you could see this with Obama, you know, or Trump, all these politicians, just because you won the election doesn't mean you won. You didn't lose is probably the way to think about it, right? So being a little bit humble, I think is important. I think Biden's been in this town for so long that he kind of came in with that mindset. Going for there, I think the hubris thing is interesting because you really don't have enough assets or resources to kind of get the job done. And there is a general belief in politics, like the more passionate, the more persuasive, the more hardworking, you know, if I could only talk to more people, I could win them over. That kind of eludes every politician. They don't have the marketing budget of Coca-Cola or Google and you know, they're out in the streets. If I could only just knock on one more door, I could just convince these people. There's that kind of like mentality too. And that's often, you got to be somewhat delusional to be a politician because it's an insanely ridiculous, soul-crushing job. <laughs> it's just like nonsense. And as we saw just recently in the UK, you know, like you can be murdered because you're dealing with crazy people. It's a very interesting profession from that sense. So I, you have to have a little bit of hubris. You have to be an adventurer. You have to be a bit entrepreneurial and realistic at the same time. The best politicians are a bit of chameleons. They have a persona on screen and they have a persona behind the scenes. And when they're can't, when they out and about knocking on doors, they may be more enthusiastic, but behind closed doors, they may be more strategic. And I think those are the best politicians.
0: The tragic moment. you were referring to is, of course, the British MP, Sir Dennis Amos, who was stabbed to death just last week in his constituency surgery.
1: Yeah, when I worked for, um, I had just left Tom DeLay's office, gunmen had stormed the Capitol and had shot two police officers. And one of them I knew really well. I mean, it's a very rare occurrence, which is great, but, you know, these people are frontline and, you know, they're dealing with all kinds of elements in society. So it's something to think about as well. You have to be like, I don't want to say superhuman because these are normal people, but you have to have a certain level of confidence and almost naivete and just like, you know, I'm doing the will of the people. I'm out and about. I'm talking to people. If I could just connect with more people, they could see my way of thinking.
0: But the issue of overconfidence, coming back to that, how do you protect against leaders from taking risky decisions which may be based on false assumptions?
1: Yeah, so I've never been elected to office, but I've been around a lot of politicians or kind of senior executives. And, you know, I tell them, my job as a staffer or an advisor is to put you in the best position to succeed. At the end of the day, it's your decision. So that's all you can really do as a staffer and even the staff principal relationship because there's a lot of staffers that are like they think they could do the job better or they think they should be the elected official and there's hubris on that side of it too and I think if you just have an honest frank discussion with the candidate or the principal and you recognize the role and say I'm a staffer like I don't I'm never going to be in the photos I'm not going to write a book like I'm here to serve you help advance your mission put you in a position to succeed I think it's really important and I think the best politicians that rise to like the senior levels of any government are surrounded by really talented people and they themselves are really, really like exceptional politicians. Like The skills of all these guys, Trump, Hillary Clinton, Obama, Corbyn, Johnson, I mean, they're amazing, amazing politicians. There's a reason they got to the top of their parties. Now, they may not win the general election, win the big job, but they're super, super, super talented politicians. And they usually attract the best kind of staffers as well. So the lesser politicians probably overcome from overconfidence, hubris, not thinking about the long game. They don't last that long in this town. Even the staffers, too.
0: We'll come back to some of those characters. I'm not completely convinced that all of those attract the very best staffers, but <laughs> I accept I accept your point and I accept your point at a general level.
1: That's as well, I guess it's relative. Contextual. It's, re- it's, yeah.
0: it's, it's, it's relative. It's not it's not it's not absolute. But thinking of governmental systems, clearly the US and the UK function differently. Do you see any pros and cons of the way our system works here in the US, in the UK rather, versus yours in the US, in terms of putting constraints, putting rule, putting guards in place if you like, against political chicanery or decision-making?
1: Yeah, no, I think that generally the parliamentary system allows more voices, more parties to be a part of it, you know, more coalition government, the fixed five-year term, you know, whether or not you have a snap election, I think it's smart because you've got turnover. Democracies need to know people are going to leave, right? Even when Trump was elected. I've been a Republican my whole life. I'm not a Trumpster, but I was like, listen, he's he's only here for four years. It's not forever. Like there's an exit valve and there's other forces, right? So I think having like an off-ramp to any kind of politics is super helpful. Our system in the U.S. is so fractured. Like if you actually step back and think about how we've set up our system, we have county governments, state governments, federal governments. And at the federal level, there's an election every two years. A third of the Senate is up. There's a presidential election every four. You have new players every two years. I mean, it's designed essentially not to get anything done, which is good and bad, but that's the reality of the situation. I mean, you would, nobody, the, the, the interesting about your government every five years, you know you're gonna, have a, you're gonna have a new government, possibly a new prime minister. We have a new government every two years. Years. And in fact, if you're a member of Congress, if you're in the House of Representatives, you're campaigning basically full time, especially if you're a new member nobody knows you. So just the amount of politics and campaigning in our system, maybe good or bad. I don't know. I mean, I love it as a practitioner, something I grew up with. We spend tons of money on it, unlike any other system in the world. You know, our First Amendment freedom of speech, it's very rowdy. It's a bit of a circus. It's covered like ESPN, like the sports pages, which is good and bad. It's very front and center. So I don't know. It's kind of fun. I found the UK system civilized. In 2001, I did some work for the Tory party. And I felt like it was very nine to five campaigning. You know, we were back in London every night. It was very civilized. Where uh, campaigning in the U.S. is, you know, 14, 18 hour days nonstop. There's never enough time. You're just out and about constantly.
0: But thinking about democratic systems, which you highlight, I mean, paradoxically, its inherent problem is that it encourages most politicians to lie and filibuster their way to greater power and longevity. I'm going to be provocative for the for the fun of it, which suggests that benign dictatorship is almost preferable. I mean, is that a load of BS?
1: I think your first point about, like, especially the seat on the legislative branch, you need seniority. You need to be there for a long time. Yeah, I mean, Nancy Pelosi's in her 80s. She's still doing it. She's been speaker twice. If you want to be speaker of the House of Representatives, you've got to decide early early on that you're going to be in the House for 15, 20 years, and you're going to win 10, 12 elections. You're not going to be president if you want to be speaker. But that is where the power and influence comes from, right? If you want to be chairperson or you want to lead a committee, you're going to have to make that commitment, et cetera. There are a lot of people, especially in the House, they just want to get in there and make make a name for themselves and possibly run for the Senate and possibly run for governorship. The way to think about it, I always say the House of Representatives is like high school, the Senate is like college, and the executive branch of the White House is like university or like PhD, very serious. And I think that's like the With an election every two years in the House, it is like complete chaos, completely crazy, unprofessional, uncouth, just wild circus, which I love. I find it fascinating and unbelievable, especially if you like politics. Whereas the Senate with six-year terms, it is like the world's greatest waiting room ever. And you're just sitting there (laughs) waiting for something to happen much more serious. Even physically, when you go to different sides of the Capitol, the House is not as posh. But the Senate, much more ornate, better furniture, better everything, right? It's just, it's completely wild. And I think that plays into it. But it's just the nature of the system. The big thing, I think, with politics is, I think, to be successful around communications and strategy, it's not to be hopeful, not to be like, oh, I wish. It's all about, here's the reality of the situation. Like, let's get through it, right? That's like the key. A lot of people put their hopes and dreams into politics. I'm like, no, I'm a very dour, reality-based, like, here's the reality of the situation. Of course, yeah, we could create a new constitution, create a new system of government, but that's not going to happen today. What's happening today is you've got to win this vote. You have to get 218 people to vote with you in the House of Representatives. Let's get the job done.
0: But at executive branch level, or at the call it at the top of the pile, it strikes me that there is this irony of democracy which generates this fear of losing, and especially you talk about in the US these incredibly speedy cycles of, of turnover. And what the democratic system pushes is that there is this need to compromise. There is a need to satisfy multiple factions. There is a desperate desire for survival at all costs. And inadvertently or otherwise, it often creates very unequal, unfair outcomes. And so my provocative comment about dictatorship was exaggerated. But we probably, of course, prefer democracy to any form of autocracy. But in some ways, I wonder whether you see both as self serving as each other at times, certainly at the top table.
1: I, mean, I think a lot of that is just like the fear, all this like democracy is crumbling. And uh, I don't know. I think it sells a lot of newspapers, makes for good TED Talks, very intellectual, Chatham House discussions. But in reality, the system is set up. There's tons of checks and balances. It's super hard to get anything done. A major piece of legislation, going to take 10 to 12 years to change. The system I said is not designed to move quickly. If you think about it, the system is like to depress hyperactivity for the best outcome. I think that's a better way to look at it. And sure, democracy is going to be tested and pushed. But like I said, there's tons of checks and balances. It's super hard to get anything done. Even if Trump knew exactly what he was doing, it would be super hard to get full control of the system of government. I think it sells a lot of newspapers and it's scary and unsettling, but democracy has always been messy and pushed about. The 60s to me seemed like a much more crazy time. You had three major, in the US, three major assassinations. You know, Two Kennedys were killed, Martin Luther King You had riots. We started having political assassinations, three in a decade. That's pretty wild stuff. That seemed like a more challenging time to me. Trump was just such a bombastic over the top. He didn't know anything about government. He still doesn't know anything about government. He knows nothing about history, economics, anything important to be president. And he was surrounded by a bunch of pirates. That combination is very unsettling, especially when the US has access to nuclear weapons. That's what makes it a bit dodgy and a bit unsettling.
0: But You talk of the complexity of getting things done, the layers of system and bureaucracy. I wonder whether you think that you know politicians and policymakers actually then live in the real world do you think they sometimes overestimate with all the debate and the minutiae do you think they overestimate how much people actually understand or embrace most policies and debate
1: 100% like I think it's back to the idea about hubris passion like if I can only talk to more people if they can only see my thing this idea too, like you know why are not these people voting for their interests well their interest is not your interest and your interest you're just you're assuming your interest is their interest right and I think that happens a lot with a lot of political players you know and you win like I said, you win an election, you feel great. You come to town and you're a freshman member of Congress. Nobody cares. You've got like the worst assignments, the worst office, the worst staffers. You're at the back of the line and you got to find a way to kind of claw your way through. There are a lot of politicians that have great ideas, get a lot of great press coverage, but they come to town and DC just suffocates them. I have this thing like DC is undefeated. Like ultimately DC is going to beat you. The US government is going to survive. You can be president. You can be a Senator. You could be Microsoft. You could have a great blockchain idea. You could revolutionize. <laughs> the way we travel and spend money, communicate, but ultimately DC collectively is going to say, you're the rules of the road. And that was a big lesson with the Microsoft antitrust case. You see that now it's like kind of big tech. All my crypto friends love to tell me they own crypto. That's another interesting uh, discussion maybe, but ultimately the US government and other governments are going to decide, currency is like a core thing to any government. They're going to sort that out, right? It's just a lot, it's like, what's the leash? How long is government going to let you kind of innovate before they kind of rein you in? That's part of the, the hubris and uh, kind of passion behind politicians and even entrepreneurs.
0: And and you paint a picture of a rather suffocating place to be, quite frankly.
1: It's designed not to get anything done. And there's a lot of interest. There's many agencies with subpoena power, the judicial branch. I mean, there's a lot of interest. Factions are rampant everywhere. It's not impossible. You just got to be kind of realistic. And how committed are you to, you know, kind of see your big idea through? But DC, I mean, like the District of Columbia is independent. It's not a state. It's its own territory, right? So I'm always like, the US government is always going to survive it may be small, it may be big, but there's going to be a US government. And the US government is designed to keep going perpetually. It doesn't matter who the participants are, but the US government's going to survive in some form.
0: I talked momentarily just before about politicians facing reality. And then as soon as you said or refer to getting nothing done, of course, I thought of Brexit as the obvious connection point, as an obvious example, because I've often wondered, as many have about, you know, the correlation between big campaign messages and how people actually then decide where to put the cross on an election day. Brexit really really threw that issue up in the air, but it's not the only example.
1: Yeah, I love talking about Brexit too, because as I was saying how DC is designed not to get anything done, I mean, Brexit with a simple majority vote of one check was designed to get a hell of a lot done with very little thinking. I'm still baffled and slack-jawed that you would go to the public and say, do you want to leave the union? Yes or no? And there was no other check. There was no vote in the House of Commons. There was no judicial oversight. The Queen had no authority. It was just left to the people. Our system is a republic. It's not left to the people, right? The people can put their voices in, but they send representatives. But whenever you have a direct to the people vote, you have no idea what's going to happen. And you've seen that with Brexit. That's democracy on scale, which is great. Yeah. And like you see this a lot in California. As you go further west in the US, there's a lot more direct to ballot issues that are decided where the um, legislators or elected officials are happy to be like, oh, let's let the people decide. I don't want to take this vote. We'll leave it to the people.
0: Let me ask you this, thinking about your experience on the Hill, how prevalent is the fear of defeat? How prevalent is insecurity amongst the main protagonists?
1: Off the charts. And I think too, to have a long career, it's also the peer pressure, like being a part of the party. Do you have aspirations beyond, you know, do you want to be a senator? Do you want to be in the cabinet? Do you want an ambassadorship? Are you a good team player? There's a lot of pressure on both sides of the aisle to keep you on the team, so to speak. Two years is not that long. And elections are very personal. You know, when you go to your fellow neighbors and they say, we don't want you anymore in office, it's a very humbling experience. So that's always kind of lurking. I don't think it's as dramatic. I think more about being on the team, being a good Republican, a good Democrat, a good Tory, a good Labour member that weighs on members every day. I think the along- designed to kind of keep you, you know, on the team.
0: I agree. I and mean, I think alongside this fear of fear of losing also comes in parallel a fear of showing any weakness. So if I think back historically, whether it's we reflect on the mess, say of weapons of mass destruction or the management of the financial system before the last crash, or taking a take a relatively recent British example justifying Dominic Cummings's COVID chicanery, you know, right. politicians suffer from terrible confirmation bias. Right, This tendency always to seek out or interpret evidence in line with existing views. And similarly, by the way, interestingly, they cannot be seen to agree with any idea the opposition proposes, perhaps unless it's wartime conditions. So my question is, is, is all of that just a very sad state of affairs or am I being terribly idealistic to even propose it?
1: I think you've been watching too much of the uh, West Wing. Yeah, it's a bit, (laughs) but no, I I think it gets back to the idea like politicians have power and influence, but they have very little control. Like any event can change them. I mean, they're not, it's not like they're running a manufacturing plant where they've kind of sorted out how to build a widget or how to build a washing machine or build a car. Anything can change. Anywhere in the world can change their day. So there's that power and influence, but lack of control coupled with all these other factions and forces. You could win an election and get the job, but automatically you have special interests you have corporations, you have donors, you've got the media. There's just a lot of wear and tear to kind of shape and lessen your feelings. So I think the lack of control is very unsettling. Plus with, you know, to like have any power and real influence, you have to stay in this job for, you know, maybe half a decade or over a decade to have any kind of authority. So those elements create a very interesting stew.
0: Do you think it's such a genuine risk to agree with the opposition or are there are there other circumstances, you know, actually when it makes sense to be less self-serving and a little more collaborative.
1: I think if you go to the Pareto effect, right? Like the whole 80, 20 thing, most politicians are not on TV. Most politicians are not hyper politic. Our media, the way it's covered on both sides of the Atlantic, they want the most interesting voices. You know, they want the clicks. They want something provocative, interesting. And those voices tend to crack through. Most politicians are very sober attorneys, pretty boring people. They want to do the right thing. They want to help their constituencies. There's 635 members of parliament, right? I mean, there's probably 20 that are on TV all the time. In the US House of Representatives, there's 435 members. probably 40 that are on all the time, 20 on each side. So they tend to get the most noise. The way the media reports and the way consumers consume politics has become much more sport, much more drama. You know, it's like the best drama TV show ever. And the hyper-partisanship is only, I think, raised because you're right. I don't think most things in America today are going to go really well. In fact, everything I do today is probably going to go exceedingly well. And we haven't been challenged like at a level where we've had to like come together. Even with COVID, we haven't as a nation said, this is a national. Security threat. We all need to come together. But I think the hyperpolitics is a bit overblown. And I think people are just, there's a, a sense of politicians I feel now that just, they generally want attention as opposed to actually wanting to do solutions, if that makes sense.
0: I mean, do you feel that the media has caused great damage to politics, its reputation, the real story?
1: Since the 60s, trust in institutions in the U.S. has gone down. Since Kennedy was elected, it's been downhill. Vietnam War, the Korean War, Reagan, there was an uptick. 9 11, there was an uptick. But most, if you look at the trust in institutions, both media and the US government, been down to the left, down to the right for over 60 years now. So that's not surprising. Their business model is completely whacked, completely out of control. Anybody can get online and start spotting off crazy stuff. I mean, I do think there's a lot of politicians and even media that are just responding to like the most just absurd titillation or, you know, interesting kind of cheap point. That may work in the short term, but that's not a long-term strategy. But politicians are the ones that use those tricks. Yeah, they're getting attention. They're getting booked on TV shows They're getting invited to speeches and they feel like it's working For them, but it's very easy to get attention. Both of us could get viral clicks very easily. Like we could both act like a total moron, run around, you know, Victoria Station naked, and we would get clicks. We would get attention. But is that going to help us win an election? Probably not. The serious politicians they take a different approach.
0: Yeah, I, I won't be, I won't be uh, going to Victoria immediately to promote a load of BS with your strategy. I mean, short term, obviously, it feels an extremely exciting approach. But right. long term, you know, I, I I might have to fire you for that kind of advice. Being you know.
1: critical of the Communist Party in China, not that hard. Saying to Apple, who's 20% of the revenue is coming from China, that they should leave. that You know, that's an aggressive situation. You know, you find out like, what's happened with the Newcastle football team in Saudi Arabia. Super, super, super complicated. The easy stuff, being hyperbolic or hyperpartisan just to be partisan, may feel good, but is it a long term strategy? I don't think so.
0: But despite the eighty twenty rule which you highlight, which says actually it's a it's a relatively small number of politicians who are on this on the TV screen and taking up column inches and perpetuating this sense of hysteria, do you nevertheless think that the public, and that could be the US public, it could be the UK public or generally, would be more sympathetic to politicians if they were frankly more human and told the truth now? again.
1: I mean, I think they're more human. I don't know. I mean, I live in my little neighborhood. My senator is like four blocks from me. My member of Congress is right around the corner. You know, I see them grabbing coffee. They seem totally normal, but they're not. Politicians are getting on the front page. You know, they're not on Fox News. They're not being interviewed by CNN. Like, they're totally decent, normal people. I think most politicians, by and large, most people that get into government are good, decent people. Now, of course, there are outliers. There's outliers everywhere. Banking industry, Hollywood, you know, sports. They tend to get the most attention. But, you know, most politicians, by and large, are pretty decent some people. And frankly, they want to get to know their constituents. You know, I mean, I think more people should spend time making an effort to like attend a town hall, you know, take the member of Congress to coffee, organize. Like a big thing is just invite them to your place and work, you know, let them tour, meet around. That's why lobbying and communications is so important. Elected officials don't know everything. You know, you're the subject matter expert. They need to hear from you. If they pass this law, if they change this, like how's it going to affect your business? How's it going to affect your way of life? They need to hear from that. And if you leave it up to the loudest voices, the most cantankerous, the most hyperbolic, they're getting the worst information. You know, I think as a good citizen, not only voting is important, but, you know, you should make it a point of order to once or twice a year, reach out to your elected officials.
0: No, I I think you're right. Certainly in the UK, the majority of MPs go into the job with the very best of intentions. I believe strongly in that. What I also believe is that most convicted fraudsters don't commit fraud initially with the intention of causing huge damage and to go to the degrees of criminality that they end up doing. So politics pushes people at times down a slippery slope but perhaps yeah, that's yeah, a, no, a fact I mean, of the job.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's a human, you know, it's a human institution. It's made of humans. People are greedy and conniving, And uh, also House of Cards is far more interesting, a television show than, you know, if you had like good government television show, nobody would what? care. But like the House yeah. of Cards is far more interesting or the thick of it, right? These are television shows that are much more interesting.
0: Right, for sure. And what do you think it says about us that actually we don't really seem to care that much when Boris Johnson belches so many lies? I mean, you could say the same for Trump. We become inured to it, right? Because in a sense, these guys, maybe they're just in their own echo chamber arguing amongst themselves. And and sometimes the opposition is quite feeble. That's been the case in the UK for a while. And uh, they kind of say what they like.
1: Yeah, and I do think, I mean, part of Boris, for example, is a bit of a shtick, like the whole messy hair, you know, the man of the people. I was always thinking about George W. Bush, you know, him chopping wood, riding his mountain bike, like, you know, it made them like more normal to more Americans or more English or more members of the UK. So, some of that, like I said, the best politicians are a bit of a chameleon, right? They've got like a different persona. I, I would be surprised when uh, Boris is off holidaying in some fancy part of the world that he's acting the same way. I think, you know, there's Boris on camera. Even Obama, I think, the like I said, the best politicians know how to connect with people. They're chameleons. They know how to walk into a boardroom, a Fortune 500 company, talk to CEOs, but they also know how to go to a diner and order a hot dog and a milkshake, right? Those are the best politicians. The ones that struggle, they just remain in one camp all the time. And at a certain level, you've got to be able to connect to all kinds of different people.
0: That encapsulates it nicely. And there ends a whirlwind part one with Mark Ross. Come up for air, leave a five-star review on whichever platform you're consuming this, Please subscribe and follow me both on aloadofbs.substack.com and on your favourite podcast platform. When you do that, it gives me the heart to keep doing more of this. So spread the word and I'll be with you next week for part two of the only story in town which trumps House of Cards and the West Wing. Till next time.